this world in which we live has always been a world of turmoil. It was a world of turmoil for the early church. I think that if we could step back in time and observe the persecution that the early church went through and what it cost them to follow Christ, it would actually be a real eye-opener for many Christians. The cruelty of the Jews against Christians was only surpassed by the barbaric treatment that believers later would suffer under the hand of Rome, particularly when men like Nero ruled the empire. Open up your history books and pick almost any century and try to imagine what it would have been like to live as a Christian then, in those conditions and under that regime. Most of us are blissfully and woefully ignorant of times past. And so perhaps imagine that the difficulties that we face today are as no other generation has ever had to deal with. That simply is not true. Now, of course, the specific issues will change, but the dilemmas, the crisis of conscience that you go through, this is all being common to all of God's people. And for many of them, requiring of them their very life, which it certainly hasn't for you yet. Well, not yet. You look around today's world with the pandemic and with all of this upheaval over issues of race and social history. And through all of this, the Christian has to try and pick their way and remain faithful to God. But how do you do that? You need to remember that whilst you're at complete liberty to have your own view and opinion on world events, and acknowledge that Christians who've spent time sincerely searching the scriptures will sometimes come to different positions and conclusions compared to you, and that we must bear with one another when that happens. You need to remember that there is a sense in which none of the things which are taking place in the world have anything to do at all with God's kingdom. What I mean by that is that whatever is happening in the world, whilst we seek to view it and understand it from God's perspective through the lens of the Bible, none of the world's events ever make any difference at all as to what it means to be a Christian or what is the truth of the gospel or what is the purpose and function of the church or what a godly life looks like or what the definition of righteousness is or of what sin is and so on. Whatever is going on in the world never changes any of those things. As Christians you are citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, living under his truth and sovereignty. And the current affairs of this world don't change any of that because these are heavenly, spiritual, eternal realities 
of the kingdom of Christ, which is not of this world. It's absolutely true that all of this world's history is the unfolding of God's sovereign purposes and that you as a Christian and we as Christ's church have our place and play a role within all of that. You are in the thick of it all, in a very real sense, as am I. You look around the world in which you live. You hear what the politicians are telling you. You hear the confusing and conflicting views of demonstrators and commentators. You see and hear the sights and sounds of protest and violence. You read all the latest missives coming from your employer about what has changed in the last week. And through all of this, you are trying to find your way as a follower of Christ. And that old saying that we are in the world but not of the world really does hold true. And what David has been showing us in this prayer in Psalm 27 is that we have this other place of belonging. This other place of refuge and sanctuary for your soul. We have this superior authority and truth. We have this other loyalty and allegiance. And that is what is to be the dominant reality for you as a follower of Christ, no matter what's going on in the world. And making those things and keeping those things the dominant thing Keeping Christ as the preeminent one, that's what will help you to pick your way through all of the obstacles and hurdles that will come your way. And whoever you do please, and whoever you don't please, your first concern is that God will be pleased. And whatever you do believe, and whatever you don't believe, you'll first of all believe in Christ and in his word and seek to measure everything else against that. And if we make those things our priority, we will, as a church, remain in unity because it's these unchanging and eternal realities which are all rooted in an unchanging and eternal God which is our common ground, our common goal, our chief concern and our chief delight together as his people. For you, regardless of how world events unfold, the Lord is your light and salvation and strength. So what do you have to fear? The church will always be in the minority in terms of physical numbers and will always face opposition and persecution. But you have confidence in God who is greater than all, don't you? You are a one thing, one desire Christian. 
to dwell with and abide in Christ and through him to behold the face of God. In the midst of your circumstances, to be under his protection and in his shelter and to be set high upon a rock, that is enough, isn't it? To know the fellowship with God that we saw last week as David draws near in prayer. And as we pick up this passage at verse 11 through to the end, I want you to see something really important. Here's the first. Number one, to walk as Christ walked. That's verses 11 and 12. What David is praying for here, you will actually see exampled and exemplified in the life of Christ. This is to walk as Christ walked. Teach me your way, O Lord, says David, verse 11. Teach me your truth. Guide me in the way I should go. Help me in all the decisions that I have to take. Cause me to think and behave as is fitting for one who is your child. Give me the wisdom and the grace that I need. Grant me the strength and faith that I need. Conquer my heart that I might live gladly and willingly and submissively under your almighty hand. Let me live your way through all of this. Do you think God answers prayers like that? And is that not the life of Christ? Is that not the 12-year-old boy confounding the leading intellects in the temple and increasing in wisdom and stature and in favour with God and man? Is this not the Lamb of God insisting that John baptise him in order that all, unright- all righteousness might be fulfilled? Is that not God's Son spending whole nights in prayerful communion with his heavenly Father? Teach me your way, O Lord. Is that not the Saviour setting his face like flint toward Jerusalem and then later being in agony in Gethsemane, seeking the way that his Father has for him to go? Is it not Jesus who shows us what it really means to be taught and to live God's way? Is he not the one in whose steps you gladly follow? David continues, lead me in a smooth path. Or we might say a level or a plain path because of my enemies. Now, this is not a request that some smooth bypass might be provided so that David can just slip right past his enemies untroubled and untouched by them. This is a plea that he might be able to see and tread a smooth path whilst surrounded by his enemies, that he might hold a true and steady course through the the storm 
And such is his strength and confidence in God that he's already spoken of. The path that he has to walk is clear and plain to him, despite his enemies. Some small ocean-going boats, mainly things like small motor yachts and fishing boats, maybe 40, 50, 60 feet in length, but boats that are capable of tackling the open sea and often find themselves there. Many of them you'll, you'll find use a device called Sea Keeper. Sea Keeper is a heavy enclosed flywheel, like a big gyroscope, mounted on a gimbal so that it can pivot in any direction and it spins at about 9,000 RPM. This whole device is firmly bolted to the hull of the boat on the inside, and it produces this gyroscopic torque. That's T-O-R-Q-U-E, not torque. This gyroscopic torque which counteracts the rolling motion of the boat to provide a much smoother and more comfortable ride so that if, for example, you were on a two-week crossing of the Atlantic, you wouldn't get quite so seasick. It doesn't help the boat in any way to avoid the waves or the swell. It provides a smooth path through them. That's what David is praying for. Don't let me be so overwhelmed or fearful that I become sidetracked or confused or uncertain or blown off course or that I simply give in. Let me see a clear path through this. Let me see a smooth path that I may walk with confidence and at peace with you, even through the midst of my enemies. Was that not the life of Christ? As he explained to his disciples time and again the purpose and reason for his coming and that he must suffer and die and then rise again the third day. Was that not a smooth path, a clear path which the Saviour walked unfazed by his enemies? Not necessarily an easy path but a smooth path in the sense that it was plain and clear to him the way that he should go. And was there ever a man who knew more about the breathing out of violence against him than Jesus knew? Have false witnesses ever raised their voices against you in the manner and with the intent with which they were raised against the sinless Son of God. Would you therefore take such offence that some might dare to do the same to you? Will you not gladly walk for him the road that he has walked for you? And will, will the will of Christ's enemies prevail?
the will of our enemies. The will of Christ's enemies did not prevail, did it? Yes, they succeeded in having him put to death. But their will was that this whole movement might be thwarted and stopped in its tracks by means of his death. That was their will. It turned out that Christ's death and resurrection was not the finishing, but the starting gun. Christ may have been delivered to death, but that, in fact, was all according to the will of his Father, not the will of his enemies. It's interesting that line in verse 12, David doesn't ask to be delivered. He doesn't ask not to be delivered to his enemies, but rather not to be delivered to their will. Do not permit them to achieve their aim. Jesus was delivered to his enemies, but not to their will. Let them do to me in my body as they wish as I walk this smooth path. But Lord, don't let them get their way. Don't let them achieve what they see as being their goal. They didn't with Christ. They weren't with David. You accomplish your way, O Lord, and teach me my way in it. This was David's prayer. You see it in Joseph in Egypt. You see it in the story of Daniel in Babylon. We see it supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ. If this had not been his life and prayer, he, he never could have been your saviour. But this was his life and his prayer, and he is your saviour. And you with David and Joseph and Daniel and the apostles have all been called to follow after him. And that requires us to learn how to pray as David prayed. And thirdly, we see, uh, secondly, rather, we see believing faith produces hope. Believing faith produces hope. Here lies one of the proofs of true saving and believing faith, that the goodness of God may always be seen because it is actually always there. You just need the eyes to see it. This is what helps to undergird the being content in any circumstance, which we see in the Apostle Paul and his rejoicing even whilst a prisoner in chains. There were times when Paul was in despair and when he found the going unbelievably tough. But that was never a rut that he got stuck in. And it was never able to persistently dog him and bother him because he was a man of believing faith that God is still good and that he would see God's goodness. And Paul did always. Whatever his circumstances were, he could see the goodness of God. He could see the gospel continuing to bear fruit. 
On a cloudy day, have you ever worried that you'll never again see the sun? Or that perhaps it's not there at all? No, of course not. You know that the clouds which currently veil the sun will soon be passed and the sun will be seen again, even in this country. How much more should the Christian not lose heart and remain firm in hope? And this firmness of hope comes by believing faith in who God is and that you will see evidence of his goodness in the land of the living. I heard someone say this week that as David continues in prayer and in praying in this way, he becomes more and more sure of spiritual things. Little by little, he becomes sure that God has heard him. He has some sense of sweetness and of rest and of peace and confidence. His courage is renewed. His doubts become settled. His faith is strengthened. His love grows. He comes to know the embrace and the drawing near of God to him. God visits David in his soul. His faith is not just a matter of right doctrine in his head, although that's important, but his heart, his affections, his emotions are all touched in the place of prayer. He's aware that he is actually having dealings with God and that God is dealing with him. What he found hard to believe, he's coming to believe. And what he's coming to believe, he now believes with certainty. That's, it's all growing. And that he will see the goodness of the Lord. David's being moved and changed in the place of prayer. Some of you will go through great trials when your faith will be tried and tested. Some of you perhaps are going through such a trial right now. If you learn to pray as David prayed, you will not lose heart. You'll be able to testify of the goodness of God in the land of the living. This is what makes you different when you look at what's going on all around you. The testimony of the Christian is, the Christian is that in loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim. And from the depths of sin and shame, through grace, he lifted me. He called me long before I heard before my sinful heart was stirred. But when I took him at his word, forgiven, he lifted me. Now, on a higher plane I dwell, and with my soul I know it's well. That's it, you see. On a higher plane you dwell. You're a citizen of heaven, even now. And that is the basis for how you think and feel and live and for all your hopes and for the scattering of all your fears. And we read of Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And then in the final verse 14, we read there of a waiting that never disappoints. This is not waiting for God, like you might wait for a train or a bus. When you wait for something, the thing you're waiting for isn't there right now, and you're waiting for it to come along. That's not prayer. That's not the kind of waiting that David is doing. 
He's not hoping that if he waits for long enough, God will make an appearance. David isn't waiting for God. He's waiting on God. What does that mean to wait on the Lord? Well, in large part, it's exactly what he's been doing from verse 1 to verse 13. You wait on God in his presence. You beseech God. You plead with God. You unburden your heart to him and you wait on him in his presence. You submit to him. You humble yourself before him. You abandon your own timetable so that you can trust in his. You abandon your own will in order that you might seek his will. You lay to one side your own desires so that just one thing might indeed rule in your heart. And again, we see this so clearly demonstrated in the life of Jesus as he so frequently took himself off, as I've already mentioned, in order that he might wait on God, his Father. At all the great milestones of his life, you find Jesus waiting on his Father, communing with him. And as it was for David and as it was for Christ, you will find that it's in waiting on God in your secret life that your public life will be sustained and kept. The proof of that, think about this, is that if David had only turned and waited on the Lord when his eyes first fell upon Bathsheba, what a whole load of sin and heartache he might have avoided. In waiting on the Lord, you'll find wisdom and grace and courage and strength. On his rooftop that one night, David didn't pause to wait on the Lord and he paid a heavy price. And there's no fast track system like there is at some theme parks so that you don't have to queue and wait. There are no shortcuts. We live in an age when no one wants to wait and everyone wants a shortcut. We want everything in no time, but we have no time for anything. How do I get it now? How can I have it today? Not with God. Wait on the Lord. In the midst of the world's frantic activity, where is the Christian to be found? As the world scrabbles for answers, where is the Christian church to be found? As the world's media demand of our politicians answers today for the questions they'll have tomorrow and expect them to have the wisdom of hindsight long before events have taken place, where is a Christian like you to be found seeking the answers that you need? Waiting on the Lord. No quick fix, just certain hope in believing on faith and waiting on him. And it also needs to be said that waiting on the Lord includes searching your Bible. God has already spoken in the Bible and waiting on him also requires you to search out the commandments and the truths and the principles and instructions and the warnings and the promises that you already hold in your hands in God's holy book. One of the important lessons that I've had to learn, especially as a church leader, is the need to take time to consider matters, not to be 
impulsive or to be rash and rush. Frequently when someone's raised an issue that they want to talk about with me, I'll ask them to give me a general idea of the topic they want to discuss so that I have time to think it through, to find those portions of scripture which speak to that particular subject, to wait on the Lord and consider it all first. Having to wait goes against the tide of this impetuous and sinful world. Who wants to wait when you could be doing something? Who wants to wait when you could take this shortcut? Waiting time is wasted time, some might think. Not if you're waiting on the Lord. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord.